0: shouldn't have a McElrath leading and speaking in the same day. It's uh, asking for trouble. Good morning everybody. Um, If you speak to anyone who does any speaking in church, there's one thing that's just the most encouraging thing uh, that you can ask for and that's that pretty much all of your points are covered already by the time you get up to speak. Um, So it's been a great morning for me just to sit and enjoy uh, pretty much what I've prepared and I hope you'll pick up on those notes that we've already touched on as we go forward. By way of warning, uh, Micah has been experiencing some night terrors this week, so some of the parents might know what that's like Um, and I would say probably some people who knew I was speaking this morning have been having night terrors this week. Um, So if I fall asleep, either give me a gentle nudge or slip out quietly and whoever's last out, do me a favour and turn the lights off. (laughs) As you may or may not know, I recently entered my third decade, and with this advanced age has come many good things, wisdom, maturity, dashing good looks. But I'd be lying if I said it was all good. There is of course the joint pains and the inability to get out of a seat without first announcing your intent to do so, with a groan or a grunt or some other uh, exclamation. And I've also noticed that as I get older, my list of complaints grows longer day by day. Everything from the price of a Freddo to the music that gets played on Radio One seems to just get my back up. And while these are obviously trivial complaints, as I look out at the world today, more and more things just seem to get me riled up. And I would dare to suggest not always in a good or holy way. I feel the very real risk of becoming a grumpy old man in years to come, and if I'm honest, a grumpy young man in the present. And what is worse is that if I'm honest, I risk running the risk of, sorry I run the risk, rather of using my Christian faith and identity as a license for some of this grumpiness. So how are we to look out at the world that we live in today and indeed live in it day by day, without becoming hardened, grumpy old men and women? because I would dare to suggest to you that it is indeed possible. And I have even had the pleasure of meeting some older Christians who have found a way to resist the grump. Turn with me, please, to John chapter 8. And at risk of stepping on my esteemed uncle's toes, I am going to be looking this morning at an encounter with Jesus. And just to be sure, I checked the website, and this was not one of the 10 that he covered. And I know you're thinking, did he only do 10? It felt like a lot more than that. But yes, today we have one more, and it's one that you're probably well familiar with, and that is the encounter between Jesus, the Pharisees, and the woman caught in adultery. Now, by way of context, before we read the passage, Jesus is relatively early in his public ministry, and he's gone up to the temple at Jerusalem during the Festival of Tabernacles, and he's been spending some time there preaching and teaching the people about God. Now the people have been in equal parts amazed and perplexed at his teaching and indeed his identity. The crowd is split on just who this Jesus is, with some rightly believing he is the Messiah, although as we've looked at today already, quite what that meant was still being fleshed out, and others completely on the other end of the spectrum that he was possessed by demons. Unlike the crowd, however, one group is relatively well united in their opinion on Jesus, the grumpy old men of the day, the Pharisees. They are convinced that he is nothing but a blaspheming troublemaker, a rabble-rouser, all except one noted dissenter, Nicodemus, the teacher of the law who came to Jesus by night. He appeals that Jesus should get a fair hearing, but this is certainly not a welcome suggestion. Instead, the Pharisees had plans to get rid of Jesus once and for all. And the Pharisees' plan to kill Jesus was obviously not that subtle. As reading John 7, we get the impression that both the people and Jesus are well aware of their intent towards him. Indeed, they even send the temple guard to come and arrest him publicly, but to no avail, of course, as John 8 tells us, or 7 tells us, his hour had not yet come. Their schemes seemingly foiled for the moment. However, they change tact. If they can't catch him physically, perhaps they can catch him in an ethical snare or dilemma and ruin his credibility among the people. And this is where we jump in and we start our reading in John chapter 8 at verse 2. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commands us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life of sin. How I want to approach this passage today is by looking at the three groups that we see assembled in this encounter. We have the religious rulers, the woman caught in adultery, and we have Jesus. In taking some time to study each of those involved, what their actions and motivations were, I suspect that there are many lessons that we can draw out, and perhaps we can even find the cure for our inbuilt grumpiness. So firstly, let's begin our considerations by looking at the Pharisees. The Pharisees, as I'm sure you're well aware, was a group within Jewish society during Jesus' day who considered themselves to be the religious elite. They obsessed over matters of the law to a degree that most modern minds can't even comprehend, let alone beginning to apply. They had taken the law given by God in its original form, and then in an attempt to try and prevent even coming close to breaking the law, they had built a hedge of other laws around the law, so as not even to come close to breaking it. What ended up happening, basically the end result of this, was a legal system so complex and crippling that it became all-consuming for the Pharisees and entirely oppressive to the average Jewish person. The Pharisees' ultra-legalistic way of relating to God made them feel vastly superior to those around them, especially those whose feelings were publicly evident. They possessed a deep sense of self-righteousness that was rooted in their performance and on publicly shaming those around them and heaping shame on what they called the sinners that they had the displeasure of meeting. Far from being true teachers and guides to God's people, they despised their common Israelite. Only interested in piling more and more laws and restrictions on them, without ever having any interest in actually helping them to keep them. Jesus frequently consults them, or confronts them on this issue, and his harshest condemnation is reserved for them. Just listen to how he describes them in Matthew chapter 3 as he pronounces his woes upon them. It's a long reading, but I think for the purposes of getting a true measure of these people, it's it's worth reading. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so practice and observe everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, burdensome loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. All their deeds are done for men to see, They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. They love the places of honor at banquets, the chief seats in the synagogue, the greetings in the marketplaces, and the title of rabbi by which they are addressed. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those in who wish to enter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You traverse the land to win a, and see to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold of the temple that makes it, or, sorry, the gold or the temple that makes it sacred? And you say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing, but if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes it sacred? So then, he who swears by the altar, um, by it and everything on it, uh, and he who swears by the temple, by it and by the one who dwells in it, and he who swears by heaven, swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You pay tithes of mint, dill, and cumin but you have disregarded the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. I'll save reading on, but you get the idea. If ever there was a group of grumpy old men seeking to veil their bitterness in a veneer of religiosity, it was the Pharisees. And these men bring to Jesus a woman who we should not deny has committed a terrible sin, And as the Pharisees correctly point out, deserve the penalty of the law. But I want to note two things. The Pharisees are not genuinely outraged that the law of God has been broken. And they're certainly not motivated at sadness that a marriage vow made to God has been broken. No, this woman's life is simply used as a means of religious and political point scoring against Jesus. And if it makes their point, they will happily crush the the breath from her lungs with a torrent of rocks. Also interesting to note is that the Levitical law that they're happy to cite, which is found in Leviticus 20.10, states, If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. They've already openly stated their case, that this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And as the old saying goes, it takes two to tango. If ever there was proof that the Pharisees didn't really care about the letter of the law, but rather just using it to to their own ends, this is it. Because the truth is that the Pharisees had a form of righteousness, all right, self-righteousness. It was a tower that they had built for themselves from which they could safely pelt their fellow Israelites with stones, literally in this case. The bricks that built their tower was their perceived keeping of God's law and the cement that held it together and kept it firm was their cruel condemnation of all those lesser people who weren't so disciplined as they. They had no room in their hearts for grace, mercy, or forgiveness. And consequently, they had no place in their idea of God's salvation for Jesus. This Jesus, who not only spoke to sinners, but dined with them. Indeed, they kept their harshest words of condemnation for him. He was a friend of sinners. Now shift your eyes for a moment off the Pharisees to the woman no doubt trembling with fear at the mob, gripping stones tightly that at a second on a second's notice could be hurtling towards her. She knew the law and she knew what it demanded. She knew that but for a miracle, this was it for her. We don't hear her plead her case or even plead for her life. By all accounts, she is silent. What is there to say? What can she appeal to? The Pharisees are not wrong in what they say. She was indeed caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses is clear. You see, unlike the Pharisees, this woman had no righteousness that she could appeal to, no mitigating circumstances to put forward, and certainly the Pharisees had no place for leniency. She was a sinner, dead to rights before the the law of a holy God. And finally, we shift our gaze once more and we see Jesus. This Jesus who perplexed the people and enraged the Pharisees. We hear the Pharisees smugly ask him again and again, Well, teacher, what should we do with such a woman? How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees? Firstly, he does something that seems quite bizarre. He bends down and he starts to write on the ground. And while it might be an interesting exercise to muse about what exactly Jesus did on the ground or wrote on the ground, as some have tried to do, the bottom line is that we're not told. And so I would suggest that any attempt to figure that out is just unhealthy speculation. But suffice to say, given that he stooped down not once but twice to write, I doubt he was idly doodling on the ground. But what he was doing, we'll probably never know. But then he straightens up and he responds to their difficult dilemma in a way that nobody quite expects. Because he both upholds the law's verdict on the woman's sin, and at the same time stays the hands of those who would seek to enforce it. We don't hear Jesus plead a case for the woman that seeks to deny her lawbreaking, or to find a loophole around it and its clear command. Rather, he puts the spotlight back on the Pharisees and exposes them for what they are, poor judges and unfit executioners. Imagine the scene. These men finally believe they have a way to catch Jesus out, and now, with one simple sentence, he turns the whole situation on his head. He exposes these men's greatest fear to the crowd. Because while they liked to pretend otherwise, they knew at heart that all had sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How could any of them be so bold now as to throw so much as a pebble, never mind a rock? And so starting with the oldest, and presumably the grumpiest of the group, they drop their rocks and they go away tails tucked firmly between their legs. And then Jesus turns his attention to the woman, likely still shaking and fearful. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replies in disbelief. Then neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. And this is how the encounter ends. The woman is free to live another day, no longer condemned to die because of her sin. And I suspect thankful to Jesus. I suppose the obvious question is, how is this possible? After all, Jesus exposes that the Pharisees are not fit to execute the sentence of the law's demands. But he never denies it. And he is fit to execute that judgment. Why does he not do what the law commands and stone this woman to death? After all, he himself is the God who wrote the law and is uniquely qualified to carry out its sentence? How is it possible that the one who should have been the most grumpy is only full of grace? Could it be that Jesus was looking forward to the day when he would take the punishment for her law-breaking on himself? The day when he would be the one before the crowd of Pharisees, hanging naked on a tree, suffering the worst that they could do? Jesus doesn't ignore her law-breaking or pretend it doesn't matter, but he is uniquely aware of a day coming when all breaches of the perfect law will be be paid in full at his expense. Jesus is not like the Pharisees who, as Matthew 23 reminds us, disregard the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Unlike them, he can see how justice, mercy, and faithfulness are uniquely manifested in him. And he can allow a sinner like this woman to go free at his expense. After all, this is the same Jesus who wept over Jerusalem. Far from being consumed with rage at their unbelief and calling down fire and brimstone as his apostles would have liked him to, he is instead heartbroken at their lostness. And like a mother hen, he longs to gather them under his wing. So hopefully that's given us some insight into the context of this encounter and given us a closer look at those involved and what their actions and motivations were. And what I hope to do with the time I have left um, is to essentially now look and see how can we apply this to ourselves? What can we learn um, from what we see here? And the first and perhaps most obvious lesson that I think we can learn from this encounter is that before God we are all like the woman caught in adultery. And we've thought about that so much today already. He is our God and creator, the very one who gave us life and every good thing that we enjoy. And yet we traded it. We traded our relationship with him in exchange for our own sinful desires. Numerous times throughout the Bible, God seeks to demonstrate how mankind is exactly like an adulterous wife. Though we should be faithful to him alone, we happily install others in the seat that only he should occupy we flout his commands and ignore his rule and consequently we stand guilty before him the law is clear that we must pay for our sins and that payment is death and yet like the woman in our encounter this morning jesus tells us that we can go free and like the woman in our story it's not because the law doesn't matter to jesus it's and it's not that the sentence doesn't apply to us anymore but rather it's because he has fulfilled the law's demands for us. He was found guilty so that we could be called innocent. He was stripped so that we could be clothed. He was struck and spat on so that we could be embraced and kissed. He, was, he had a crown of thorns beaten into his head so that I could have a crown of righteousness placed on mine. His wounds were opened up So that mine could be bound. He was nailed to a tree. So that I could be free. He was called sin. So that I could be called a son. And he died. So that I could live. That song this morning. Come sinner. Come and see. What the Lord our God became for thee. What a saviour we have in Jesus. A saviour who doesn't look on us. With the cruel disdain of the Pharisees even though he's the only one who rightly could. How different is the righteousness of Jesus to that of the Pharisees? The Pharisees possessed a fragile and ugly form of righteousness, a self-righteousness that needed to be upheld at the expense of others. Jesus possesses true righteousness that has compassion on broken people like us and that seeks our restoration at his own expense. My second lesson, and I believe the true cure to grumpiness. Having seen ourselves as a sinful woman, saved by the gracious intervention of Jesus Christ, is there a risk that we could find ourselves getting up from our pitiful position and slipping into the crowd of the Pharisees? Now that we've been saved from our particular brand of adultery, whatever that might have been, is there a risk that we then start to drag others before Jesus? And demand their condemnation. I think of how some parts of the church have been guilty of treating homosexuals, those of different ethnic or racial backgrounds, even those within the church who simply differ on secondary matters of the faith. And as ever, I think Jesus is the best role model we can take when we encounter people whose lifestyle or beliefs we feel are out of step with God's law. Firstly, we must approach them with grace and not condemnation. Then, as Jesus did, we will be in a place to help them follow his command to go and leave their life of sin. After all, it's the grace of Jesus and the new life and freedom that he offers that is the only true motivation and means by which any of us can leave our life of sin. It's true that we should never be light on sin, and certainly Jesus wasn't. He called it out where he saw it and he called the people to repent, but he did so in love and not in judgment. As he himself says in John three sixteen and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. It's true that the church and we as individuals must be active in our efforts to stem the tide of human sin, and frankly the madness that we see being promoted in our world today. I think of organizations like the Christian Institute that lobby to stop the evils of abortion, fight for a godly definition of marriage, and seek to give Christian perspectives on moral issues. But we should always do this out of a genuine sense of love for God's law and a deep concern for the harm that such sin inflicts on mankind, made in his image and immeasurably valuable to him and should be to us. We should never use the Christian faith as a means of harboring bitterness, anger, or bigotry towards anyone. And I suspect we all know the difference between those two attitudes in our own heart and when we might be guilty or at risk of crossing that line. May we never be like the Pharisees, so fragile in self-righteousness that we feel the need to crush others to try and maintain it. Rather, may we be like Christ, knowing our righteousness is not built on self, but on him. If we have this kind of righteousness, we will be people of grace and mercy who seek to love the broken at our expense. When people encounter this kind of love, they encounter Christ. And when they encounter Christ, they can hear his words spoken directly to their hearts. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. There's no more liberating or necessary words that a heart can hear. The New Testament is clear that we live in the age of grace and not grump, where God is withholding his judgment on sin so that men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation have an opportunity to take advantage of his gracious offer of forgiveness and restoration. What a shame it would be if the grace of God was obscured with human condemnation and callousness, not based on a true love of God's law, but rather based on our own very human prejudices, biases, and preferences. Our job is not to decide who is worthy to see and experience the love of God, but rather to go to all people everywhere and share the good news that Jesus Christ, the Holy Son of God, loves them so much that he died for them so that they could be set free of sin and brought home to their Father in heaven. Yes, we should confront people with their sin, but only after we have shown them the God of love who wants to take that sin away and heal the scars that it's left. I know that my witness is not always like this. I'm far more of a Pharisee than I care to admit. I have my biases, my prejudices, and my preferences, and I'm sure you do too. May God give us the strength, the grace, and the love for all people from all walks of life that Jesus had. May our evangelism be rooted in and fueled by compassion, and never condemnation. I suspect if it is, we might just be somewhat more effective in reaching out to a broken world that needs a saviour and not a judge. This is what the, the Apostle Paul experienced. Listen to his words in Philippians 3 as we come to a close. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. That's the Pharisees. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, In regards to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Saviour, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may know Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. There's a reason why the Apostle Paul was the most effective evangelist the world has ever seen. And it's not because he was taught by the best speakers, or had the best methods or evangelistic plan. The reason the Apostle Paul was effective in bringing the gospel to the farthest reaches of the world and to quote the Pharisees in Thessalonica, turning the world upside down, is because he experienced what the woman caught in adultery experienced. A liberation from sin and the crushing weight of the law's demands. A newfound freedom in Christ and a righteousness not his own. And I would add a righteousness set in stone. This was what fueled his evangelism at every turn. And what kept him going through the toughest challenges. This was the message that he brought around the entire globe and shared with everyone who would listen, and even those who wouldn't. This was what kept him content and not cantankerous, regardless of his circumstances. This must be the same for us if we are to be effective out there. We should not set out to throw rocks at those we don't like or agree with. But rather we should again to quote the great apostle, remember that at one time we too were foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We too were dead to the law, enemies of God, hopeless and without God in the world. But Jesus reached out to us in love and not condemnation. As First John 4.10 tells us, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Only when this love really grips us. Can we leave our life of sin. And know what it really means to live in right relationship with God. Only then do we have the good news that this broken world desperately needs to hear. May God keep us gracious and not grumpy. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlerayfellowship.com. God bless.